Software is broken, but it can be fixed. Test Double's superpower is improving how the world builds software by building both great software and great teams. And you can help. Test Double is looking for empathetic senior software engineers and DevOps engineers. We work in JavaScript, Ruby, Elixir, and a lot more. Test Double trusts developers with autonomy and flexibility at a 100% remote, employee-owned software consulting agency. Are you trying to grow? Looking for more challenges? Enjoy lots of variety in projects, working with the best teams in tech as a developer consultant at Test Double. Find out more and check out remote openings at link.testdouble.com slash join. That's link.testdouble.com slash join. Greater Than Code, episode 244. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with Damian Burke. Hi, I'm Damian Burke, and I'm here with Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey, and we're all here with our guest today, Bree McGowan. Bree is the Chief Technology Officer of Delicious Democracy. She is a developer, poet, data scientist, advocate, and modern dancer, passionate about intersecting worlds, developing community-owned artificial intelligence, and building equitism. Welcome, Bree. So glad we have you. Hello. Happy to be here. So, Bree, our first question for guests is always the same. It's, what is your superpower? And how did you acquire it? It's both my superpower and my kryptonite. It's like mm-hmm. both the strength and also the thing that will keep me up at night. But it's just so the like a science fiction author, fantasy author, Octavia Butler wrote Parable of the Sower, and the main character, Olamina, is what's called a sharer. And a sharer is basically someone who can see someone's pain and experience it as if it's their own, which is like a whole other level than empathy. But I think maybe my superpower is like just intense empathy to the point where I will actually physically not be okay if I experience or hear or see someone in pain or in need and then I think it's my like the thing that is like my Achilles heel too because sometimes I'm feeling helpless or I don't have a good path to help someone it'll just keep me up at night honestly so it's both my superpower I'm very like I feel good that I have this ability to feel deeply but also like it's hard to sometimes draw emotional boundaries. (laughs) I love Octavia Butler too. Me too. Uh, How did you get that power? When did you realize you had it maybe? As a kid, maybe. I don't know. I can't like pinpoint it, but I know that like, maybe that's what like drove me to like do a lot of like advocacy in like my teen, early adult years is because I like wanted to not feel helpless all the time. But yeah, I don't I don't know the moment I realized I had that that power, I guess. Well, that's an interesting answer too. I love the the concept that your superpower is also your weakness. It feels so true to the to the superhero genre, which I'm a big fan of, or or even the chameleon myth. 
that which makes you extraordinary is also what destroys you. Mm, I don't know. I feel like I knew more about like the superhero worlds and silos. I just, <laughs> I feel like I get by. <laughs> I feel like the opposite can also be true. And it's, it's something that I like to think about when I'm thinking about, you know, adverse and traumatic events that happen to people. And then maybe if you, you know, grew up in a terrible environment, like that can really affect you as through the rest of your life. But if you can take, you know, the coping skills that you had to learn in order to make it through, like those coping skills can make you, make, for example, really empathetic, maybe because you had to pay attention to what everyone was feeling around you in order to stay safe. But that does make it so that you can pay attention to other people to that degree to be really tuned into what they're feeling. So you can, you can take that like burden and turn it into a superpower as well. Uh, yeah, totally. So I was helping like co-lead a team a couple months ago. And I think that's honestly what makes me a good leader, like team leader is because I'm very much attuned to like, even like during scrums, like I can just hear something in someone's voice. And I'm like, Hey, what was that? Like, what are what is the closed captioning of like, what you're trying to say there? And I sometimes find it like, maybe I'm overly checking in, but also during the lockdown, I found that to be actually very helpful. So it's just trying to balance that. But yeah, I think that's also why I feel good at leading things is because I can also use that burden sometimes to be persuasive and make arguments for people to also get them to feel and see things and have a paradigm shift of sorts. I can definitely relate to, to that as a leadership skill. I am um... I'm the product lead for a product where I know the least about it and my opinion matters the least. And I've actually told this <laughs> to, to a colleague, I know the least and my opinion matters the least. And that's what makes me a good leader. Uh, I'm forced to listen because I don't know anything. So being able to, to have that naturally, it's where you're always listening and you're always aware of, of what's happening with people. That would be really powerful. Yeah. I also think I also just go back to the boundaries of like, and I said it a little earlier, like the input feed, like when to be able to move forward or practice acceptance. That's, I think, the one thing I've been doing lately is trying to practice more acceptance of things without being resigned. Oh, that's tricky. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that distinction between acceptance and resignation? Yeah, like, okay, so... For me, it's like the, between like the finite and infinite games that kind of like are at play in the world. Finite being something that you play to win and infinite games being you play to continue play. And so I tend to think of resignation as a give up, as a, a place where you abandon hope. And it's a very finite way to experience, I think, the world, because I always believe in like change and new perspective. And that's very easy to say. Sometimes it's very painful, but acceptance is maybe accepting where things are in the moment without feeling like strung out and to keep pushing for an outcome, but maybe changing how you play the game or changing what outcome you even want i think so acceptance to me just feels like making peace without 
giving up. I love that. It, it, to me, it, it kind of dovetails with the connection or the distinction between past and, and future, right? The past will not change. It will always have been what it was. And so that's something to accept. The future has not yet been written. And so we're not resigned to what we think it might be or fear it might be. Yeah. That sounds just right to me. And kind of what you were saying that I was picking up, Brie, acceptance is about accepting the past and resigning would be accepting the future such that you're not going to work on it any. I feel like you've got more nuance than that in your many sentences, but I see this parallel. (laughs) I think there's also maybe nuance between like problems or tasks versus like people. So like sometimes practicing acceptance of where people are, maybe, maybe there's a lot of misinformation going around and you're maybe expending a lot of energy trying to dispel or refute when maybe you need to practice acceptance of like understanding where people are versus so instead of being resigned and instead of being like, oh, that's just where they are, they'll never change, blah, 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 practicing acceptance of like where they are and being curious about what could be that thread or narrative that might change someone's perspective. I see this all the time. So I'm saying this as if it's like um, like a thing that happens a lot, which I have no idea. But in my experiences of like, even in the workplace with coding or like um, in advocacy, it to me, it's never like, a, oh, these people are forever this way. It's like, okay, that's where they are now. And it really is sometimes the right moment, the right person, the right dollar amounts even that might change someone's mind. So that's always interesting to me. I don't accept people not growing no matter how old you are. Yeah, that reminds me of something. Um, I think Ariel Kaplan had a, a, a talk about where he was saying that like, if you're trying to refute like maybe an idea you don't agree with or it's misinformation, you can try and say, just stop believing that or stop thinking that spaces are better than tabs, but they're probably not going to just stop doing it when you tell them to. They're probably going to dig in and, and, you know, argue against that. But if you can provide an alternate narrative that says, okay, like that's, that's your narrative right now, but there's this other one that we, that like is a path forward from where you currently are that you could just sort of switch tracks and start believing that other narrative about how things are working. It's much more effective than saying, just stop doing what you're doing, like without providing the alternative to, oh, and here's a way forward for you to, to think about how things are. I always thought that was a really useful distinction and, and way of thinking about how to work with people. Totally. Like, the worst thing is someone entrenching further into their worldview and becoming rigid and... I know. I think that's always when I notice in my body, whenever I feel tight, that's when I'm also the most susceptible to arrogance and being dismissive. So yeah, I I totally believe that because you don't want someone to be further entrenched. And uh, my like philosophy is so I'm a co-director of Delicious Democracy, which is like DC's creative advocacy lab. And our like, fundamental philosophy is figuring out ways to make things a pleasurable and enjoyable experience for folks specifically merging like culture and politics so like what is that point where people who might be apathetic to politics who feel like things will never change what would make them feel like it's an enjoyable or even celebratory experience to participate and so that's always like 
yeah, rule number one, don't try and just refute off the, like at the first go. You describe delicious democracy as a creative advocacy. Creative advocacy lab. Yeah. What does that mean? So it's morphed because of the pandemic. So before lockdown, when we were like still gathering and not worrying about the coronavirus, we did a a year long project where once a month we would gather and we would experiment in how we gathered in spaces. So even from like showing up into a space and maybe the prompt is just see everything, notice everything without saying anything to anybody. And what kind of conversations can you have with that? And so it'd be like 30 people in a room, like just (laughs) nodding and noticing each other without like saying anything. Or it'll be an event where like we kind of like did biomimicry where we would are inspired by nature. So like there is a turtle event where, you know, how a turtle like peeks his head out of its shell and goes back in. So mm-hmm. we would start with, uh, well, what would that look like as an actual like gathering event? So we'd start with like two people, like one-on-one pairs, and then like two and two, the one-on-ones like form two-on-twos and the two-on-twos four, four-on-fours. And it'd keep going until it was like 32 and 32. And then you would go back down. So then the groups would break apart and then you go back into your one-on-ones. And in those, why that's important is because you're, you're changing how you approach a space. So it's not just another political event where you're expecting a panel and people are experts talking to a, a group of folks to receive information. It's more like everyone's an active participant and your experience is your expertise. So I think... It's just a different way to approach politics that's a more ground-up, grassroots approach. And it allows for everyone to feel like they can have ownership in a movement. And so Delicious Democracy is all about experimenting with creative ways we can form like grassroots coalitions. That's amazing. It's fun. So so the pandemic, we went like digital. So like, what did our digital bodies look like? And there is like a, something called online town where you like, you can see your digital body on the screen and you can virtually meet up with people and have conversations. And the further you get to someone, like the more in focus their video is, and the more clear you can hear them and the further away, like the less you'd be out of focus. So everyone was just running around talking to each other online. It was really funny. And then now we have a project called Delicious Summer, where we are door knocking on in specific neighborhoods in Ward 5, which is the ward I live in, asking a question like, what is your top local concern? And it's really interesting to hear people's feedback. And then we like educate them on like resources they might need, like mutual aid or programs they could tap into and also the coalitions that are that exist in D.C. I love that you start the door knocking with the question about what the person's concern is rather than I want to give you all this information. You just have to sit there and take it, which is sort of the typical, I feel like way of doing it. So that whole like drawing them out into like, let's take your concerns seriously. Let's, and then you can connect them to what they're interested in and what they care about as a way of bringing them into it. I love that. Yeah, it's kind of tricky where like you can listen and then take what something say, say, like take what someone says and then say, oh, if you care about that, there's this like movement happening around just that or something like that. It's really fun. But I agree. Normally when people door knock, it's usually during campaign season. It's usually when people are like really asking for someone to contribute to something in a very like, again, I'll say finite way. 
usually to an end of like either electing someone or whatever. And sometimes it can just feel so predatory. And so this is definitely a way to flip that script and have it be a pleasurable experience for both the door knocker and the resident. Yeah. In fact, I've noticed that um, of the few emails that I've engaged with from my senator, who I, I, I love and I love all the stuff he talks about, but the only ones I really engaged with are the ones where he was like, what are your priorities? What do you think I should be focusing on? And I was like, oh, that, I, I'd love to do that. <laughs> I'll fill in the survey. Sure thing. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so like, it was, it was a very different interaction than the usual, just like either fundraising or this is an issue. I'm like, I know it's an issue. Yeah. And I think in the in-between election cycles is the great time to listen. So for future, because like Ward 5 is having a, a council member, like there is going to be an election literally next year. So this is a great way to listen to what folks in Ward 5 actually have as concern and connect neighbors to each other so that they can also like build some sort of like community power or groups to advocate for the issues that they care about in their ward. Because I think one of the things that I'm most afraid of, and this really keeps me up at night, is just like reinforcement. So in data science, there's like this concept of reinforcement learning where your algorithm just like learns on itself. And one of the things that scares me is that like with technology and the, I guess the biases we have in our algorithms and in the way in which we even go about our logic of creation scares me because it feels like there is a certain malleability to the human that may not be in like an algorithm in terms of like how far it goes in its like learning cycle and how much effort it might take to reverse some of the things it creates. And so what scares me is like inequities and like the trauma being systematically programmed in our systems. And then that being the foundation for like future artificial intelligence and things like that. So I really am trying to figure out a way to merge like the human with the algorithm in like a not so linear way. And I think one of the biggest things that I think that can be achieved is by listening to people and making policy that makes sense for people and figuring out a way to maybe like merge like technology with a government that works for people. And so, yeah, there's just a lot of like non-linearity in that, that trying to figure out, but it's not so clear. Is this connected with your work with community-owned AI? Yes. So how does that work? What, what, is that, what does that even mean? So when I say community-owned, I think like cooperative. And so a, like a worker-owned business. And it can mean a lot of different things. So I don't want to like be so prescriptive with it. Because I say it as a thing that is meant to be explored. But the way I interpret that is building some sort of artificial intelligence tool that can help mediate maybe burdens that can exist in a community where the community owns it as a tool rather than a private company owning it and extracting the community's data or whatever as profit. And then seeing in the community, seeing none of those benefits coming back into the community. So anything from like, door knocking app that's community owned that would be cool where the community can literally learn from each other 
And then if they want to, as a community, sell that data to developers who would love to have that data, I'm sure, about who's living in what and what they want and what kind of businesses they want and whatever, like that would be really cool. And the community seeing profits from that back into the community. I feel like it could also be just a like a, a platform co-op too, like anything from like a website to an app or whatever that is community owned. What's the closest thing you've seen to something like what you're imagining here? Do you have anything like it yet? So there's this like conference called platform co-op and I've never been, but it's something I've wanted to go to, but I'm sure that things like this are ideas other people have. I just, I, I haven't seen it personally, but I'm pretty sure it's out there. Cool. It sounds like an excellent way to, to get worlds intersecting and sort of preventing that sort of reinforcement that happens when you have bias built into people building in tech, which generates bias in tech, which generates bias built into the building tech. And it sort of reinforces that way by getting more people involved, more ownership, more ownership, more broadly distributed. You get that sort of more community benefit from, from the things being built. Am I getting this right? Yeah, think of like a community-owned social media app where instead of all the profits going to, to this like very small pool of owners of like, say, I don't know, Twitter or Facebook or whatever, like making it to where every user can either own their own data or their digital body or earn profits that that app makes. So... That's another way to look at it, too, is maybe even like a community-owned social media. And then what kind of rules and regulations would you want? for? I mean, it just opens a whole world of like, how do you govern it then? Like, what does it mean to have ownership? What does ownership even look like? And I think there's so many alternative ways we can think of what even ownership is. So when I say community-owned AI, like, there, it just there's a lot of layers of like, how to even go about it. The closest thing I can think of that I've used is Mastodon, the open yes. source Twitter. I'm on yes, that. <laughs> Unfortunately, very few people I know are active on it. I try once in a while to like double post Twitter and Mastodon for those few friends that I have there. Yeah. But I haven't gotten to stick there yet because the power of social networks is kind of in the way the monopolies already got it. A couple of different forms of it have different monopolies, I guess. Long form, short form. Facebook, Twitter. Oh, is Twitter short form? Yeah. Yeah, I, Mastodon's cool. I'm not on it, but I love the idea of it. <laughs> and that's a whole, that's also like a problem. Like, how do you make it desirable for people to want to own something together as a community? Because it just it just goes back to people. People sometimes don't always get along. Like, we're messy, messy creatures at times. And so there's also like a level of like, how do you even go about like building those relationships and building that trust? I think also another thing that I have a frustration with is this trend to build trustless systems like blockchain and whatever. And I'm like, okay, you know, like I get, I get it. Like I understand the desire to go that way, but. There's something that doesn't sit right with me about wanting a trustless system. I think like building better systems where trust means something and more points where if trust is broken, the whole thing isn't broken. And so making more resilient systems, I think, is worth exploring. And so that also looks like a, a disco. And that's a 
distributed cooperative. So instead of decentralized, it's distributed. And they propose, they actually have a, a cool uh, website. You should also check it out. But they propose ways in which you can build more trust in your systems that it's kind of like an alternative way to think of like what I think blockchain could be. But right now it's like the, all the rave about blockchain and cryptocurrency is like, oh, it's completely decentralized and you don't have to have trust in it. And I just, it feels counterintuitive at times. The way you're describing it makes me think of how a lot of organizations say, oh, we'll just use Scrum, the prescribed <laughs> thing, which it says not to do actually in Scrum. But uh, they say, we'll just do the thing as it's prescribed and that'll fix all of our problems. We don't need to trust our employees. That would be dumb. And then that never works out. It's the core of any functioning team is trust. It's also so fragile. Mm -hmm. Any community needs trust. Yeah. These large things just aren't as good. They're not large trustless. The way you put it with trustless is just so vivid to me. I hate it. It sounds terrible. Sounds anti-human a little bit. It's just like, what does that even mean? It is anti-human. It, it's an industrialization of a very human thing. But trust, there, there's an amazing book. Oh, God, I think it's Francisco Ferdinand. One of the premises of the book is that trust is a verb. So when you trust somebody, there's a necessity that there's a possibility of betrayal. If there's no possibility of betrayal, that's not trust. And so authentic trust is where you, where there is a possibility of betrayal and you've acknowledged that and accepted that. And we all know that it stinks when that happens. So we're looking for ways to make it not happen. And that's where we get the industrialization of trust, which is the, the basis behind uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain and Airbnb and FICO and, and so many other things. Yeah, it, it, it strikes me as there, there, you, there was in sometime in the past 15 years some concept of web of trust where you could build out a, like a network of like, I trust you. And then there's a transitive trust to the people that you trust and, and, so, so it was built through those social connections rather than sort of imposed by an algorithm or whatever it was. And it, I don't think it ever went where everyone was hoping it was going to go to turn into a way of connecting people. But yeah, I think you're right. That's so alienating to have trustless environments. That, that was an absolutely fascinating system. Uh, you know, that was uh, a way of distributing trust using public key cryptography and creating that web of trust. And, in theory, it was absolutely amazing. I think where it fell down beyond the fact that public key cryptography is not something humans innately understand, uh, but also that the trust was very binary. So it was binary and it was transitive. And that's not how humans trust, nor is it a practical way of, of dealing with trust. I was just playing with some speech recognition tool, Amazon's Transcribe. And I like how it had a confidence level, 0 to 100% for every word in the entire transcript. So I think about that now, like, even when another person's talking to me, sometimes they say a sentence or a phrase that just isn't quite right. And I know it. And I have like, only 70% confidence in that part of their sentence. Getting very granular there. Or the concept under it, if I can. Yeah, that actually reminds me of, I was reading an article about how, like, when an algorithm or a robotic system or something sort of presents data, a decision has made, I'm about to do this, I think you should do that. Like, most of the time, the UX around that is, here's what you should do, or here's what's going to happen. Not a, you know, I think this is the way to go, and I'm 70% confident that this is the way to go. 
And that giving that confidence in the decision makes humans able to parse the like the interaction so much more rather than, oh, the computer says this is 100% exactly the, the right thing to do. And then when it fails, you're like, oh, my God, computers are terrible. But if they had said, I think this is what we should do, but I'm only 70% confident, then you'd be like, oh, okay, well, we'll see how this goes. Oh, it didn't work out. Well, now we sort of understand, you know, how things can go and with that confidence level. And I think it's a much more human way of understanding an action or a choice or like a recommendation to say, like, I think this is going to work, but I'm only 40% sure. Like, that's a very different statement than you're going to love these new shoes no matter what. Oh my God, totally. So one of the biggest things that I would do if I were developing like some sort of like tool that where I had to use like some algorithm that generates a probability of what someone should do, like an owner, whoever the end user is, I always put in the confidence level. And, and I got in trouble once because they're, they're like, no, like we should have like, this is what you should do. And you click a button and it, and it like allows you to do it and whatever. But I just hated that. And, <laughs> this is kind of funny. One time I made an app for my partner and it's just like whenever I'm feeling XYZ, what how I want to be treated. So it's like a it's like a quizlet almost where like it goes through a series of questions like, is it late at night? Have I had a good night of sleep? Blah blah blah. Have you asked these things yet? Blah 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 blah. Are we at a party or are we just is it a quiet social gathering? But it like literally just goes through a couple of and it's just like 10 like solid questions where I know I'll probably feel like whatever or like have have I had a couple drinks or not it's like yes a little bit you're wasted and then it's and then it's it it then generates a series of things or like a couple suggestions of what I would like to receive or questions I would like to be asked like uh maybe just like a hey checking in or like maybe it's like ask ask me this or ask me to to just dance it out like ask if you want to dance with me because sometimes that totally throws me off especially if I'm like in a in a heated argument if someone's like will you just dance with me it'll like totally throw me off and it makes things so ridiculous and absurd and silly and so I think that's one of the things I built was this series of questions. And then I did the back end logic of like, if you answered this, this and this, but this and this, then it's probably going to be this outcome. And then it gives you like four choices each time with a confidence level of what percentage I might want. So like, is it like, just leave me alone? I'll be okay, whatever. Or is it like a, hey, maybe like, this space isn't working, you could probably try asking again, or maybe just dance it out. Like, so I just gave like a series of like possible things that he could do. And he used it for like six months, like solid straight. And it was so fun, because it wasn't just one thing to do. It was like a suggestion of many different things with percentages of like, how likely that is to maybe like work in that instance or whatever. And so I think like, Applying that logic to even like something like a, a decision that needs to be made, say, at an executive level, and then just giving options of what percentages things might work, and then also having like fallback options of like, okay, you chose this answer, here are the probable outcomes of what happens, I think is a great way to test not only your blind spots. Because hopefully you're not working in a silo. Hopefully you have other developers like checking in on you and also having those like meetings of like what those outcomes could be. But also it's like a, 
a great way to show that it's problematic to feel like 100% about anything that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was on a similar note. Uh, I was talking about how if expressing your own confidence and the position that you're expressing is also a great way to diffuse like those testy arguments about like a technical choice or whatever. You could say, I definitely think we should use JWT for this, but definitely means 70%. It doesn't mean 99%. Like, And then if everyone can give that confidence, then you can be like, oh, that's what we're working with is different people confident in different ways about different things rather than Oh, well, the senior developer thinks that we should use JWTs. I guess we have to use JWTs, even though I'm not really comfortable with the volume. But it. Like, it allows a much more fluid conversation than everyone just saying, I think we should do X. Yeah, confidence level. It's like scale of 1 to 10. How much pain are you feeling that the doctor's offices have? Just like getting the number. It's so much clearer than just trying to say regular words. Like, I'm fine. It's just a 9. Yeah, and the illustrated ones where they give you like different like activities of like, how much does this hurt? Like stub toe? Yeah. Bee? Bees! <laughs> like, my leg's off. Like, how, like, what do you consider to be a nine? Yeah, people are really good at relative, like, greater than, this is more than that or less than that, worse than that. People are good at that. People are not as good at absolute scales, but the numbers still help communicate it better than just hand waving, for sure. It's like for the vaccine. Some people say they won't get the vaccine because it won't help more than it hurts them, maybe whatever. But if you put numbers to it, some people haven't thought about the numbers enough to put it into words yet. And that's the step forward in that process of talking through it. And some people maybe would accept the vaccine if we knew more about it. Some people would accept the vaccine if the risk of COVID having a a fatal outcome was worse. Like it's a lot of people aren't having this conversation on these terms, but you can talk about it and put numbers to all these things. Like how bad would COVID have to be? How likely would you have to be to get it? Like everyone you're around has it, then would you consider getting it? Or like uh, if you tweak all these variables, everyone probably has some point where they might consider the vaccine would be more worthwhile than not. Earlier in the year, I door knocked for the vaccine campaign in DC to just let neighbors know that they could get the vaccine. And I don't know if this happened with y'all, but in DC, it was a hot mess at first because like the system like was crashing and it was like the hunger games for getting an appointment. And so one, the digital divide is so real in DC. So a lot of folks who did not have access to internet or fast internet were often left not being able to even secure an appointment. And then I can't imagine like folks who are not computer savvy having to deal with that system. So it was terrible. There was... It was horrible. It was really bad. (laughs) It was bad. So we did a, there was like a whole like door knocking campaign, just like locally. Like it wasn't like a part of a, like a actually like government led thing. But one of the questions I would ask folks, especially folks who are like hesitant or believing like even some of the conspiracy, like chip theories or like Bill Gates gonna track you or whatever, I would say, Like, okay, so, like, what would be the thing that would convince you to get the vaccine? Like, what would be that? And just, like, giving that wedge of doubt to their, I think, firm belief was really interesting because then they would actually kind of challenge themselves and be like, oh, if I were, like, it just seemed to change the conversation rather than saying I'm not going to get it. It's like, okay, what would be that variable that would make me be, like, more open to it? 
And I think that's when the conversations were easier to have, but it's hard because that, that right there deals with like a lot of like layers of fear and then poor education around like what even it was. And, and then also like really bad, like I think education around like prevention, it was just this individualistic protect you and your own mentality rather than like having a wearing a mask isn't like for you, it's for the, like for your neighbors. And I think, I don't know. I don't think there was ever a moment where people, there was like a, an actual like educational campaign around what it meant to like be a part of like this greater, I guess, cause not for yourself, but for other people. But with the vaccine specifically, I don't know. There was a, a huge level of fear around it that I encountered door knocking and then having to dispel some of the myths was interesting. I always want to know how effective communication is on things like that. And apparently it can be hard or expensive to get the information you were getting by door knocking on like a wider scale, large enough to make like estimates for the population in DC. I don't see many groups doing that. Do you know of any that like even ad hoc have sample sets of data that they use to extrapolate in DC? I'd like to see more of that. Uh, I don't know specifically about the vaccine, but I know like Working Families Party has interesting data sets sometimes. And I know even like some campaigns have like interesting data sets that may not be necessarily public, but like communication around people who are like hesitant to get the vaccine. Sometimes it's not even going to be you or a conversation that does it. So I can be like, okay, well, who do you trust? Like in this entire world, who is it that you go to? And then, cause if I'm, if I'm realizing that like, I'm not getting across, I'll just switch it, switch it up to be like, okay, whoever you trust the most, talk with them and have that conversation and see what y'all come up with. So it's always encouraging people not to be referring to like a YouTube video conspiracy theory, but going to an actual person and hashing it out with a person is always my like strategy. There's more trust with literally the people you trust. Back to that theme. Full circle. (laughs) I love these strategies because they all start with meeting people where they are, accepting where they are and going, okay, well, what can we, what can we do from here? Yeah. It acknowledges not only the reality of the situation, but also the humanity of the person you're dealing with. Oh yeah. Like people will sometimes be like, just like yelling, absolutely not. Like, no, forget that. And it's just like, okay, well, I'm not going to change your mind, but I bet I could get you to be curious about something. So that's always a, yeah, (laughs) that again, it's like, maybe I didn't get the outcome I wanted going into it, but I still think it was like a, a different game to be played. Hmm. And then back to the, to the infinite versus a finite game and a finite game is a win or a loss. Is in the infinite, we've moved in a, in a direction and we can, can keep moving in a direction. Yeah, I always feel like you've, you've made a fantastic opening in a situation like that where, where you can get them to think what would make me comfortable with this or who would I trust to actually talk this over with, where they're changing the foundation on which they've made the decision. And once that happens, more possibilities open up from there. And, and if you can get even just that little shift in the little interaction, then so what so many more possibilities are capable down the line, even again, you didn't convince them that day, but maybe they'll think about it for a couple of weeks and maybe they'll 
like notice some things that some friends are saying and then start to think, oh, well, maybe it wouldn't be that bad. And like that, that's still totally a, a success thing. Yeah, I think I think I'm always present to, especially with like people who have a completely different worldview than me. It's never going to be just one conversation that does much. It's it's going to be forming that relationship. And so it's always good to understand like what even capacity I have sometimes for that relationship building and then also like realizing like what I think might be good for maybe trusted either elected official or whatever, like what arguments they should be making. Cause I can take that to like an elected official and say, Hey, so-and-so this person was like, they're not getting the vaccine until you say that you got it and you liked it. Blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, I I'm always present to, it's not going to be just one conversation, but I'm excited about, putting that wedge of doubt in there. <laughs> There's a, a spectrum I'm building in my head just now during this conversation. In product management, we often say we want outcomes, not outputs. So if you do ship the project that doesn't help anyone in the end, but you shipped it, check, done, that's not good enough. You need the outcome of helping them with their problem. But I, here we're going a step further. It's not just the outcome that they are now changed their mind, they're going to take up the vaccine, but progress toward that goal that really is what matters. It's like the growth mindset kind of idea thrown in there. So progress is better than outcomes, is better than outputs. What do you think of that? Oh, nice. You all are inspiring. <laughs> I think progress is interesting. I personally sometimes like, like am a hesitant to say that word just because I think like a lot of relationship, especially, I don't know, in America, the idea of like, exponential growth and progress can sometimes be very toxic, but I do like the way you used it. Is there like a better word for it? I always feel like if things are getting better, then what more can I possibly ask for? My, my grandmother had a sign in her kitchen. It's like, uh, if you're well, there's nothing to worry about. If you're sick, there's only two things to worry about. Are you going to get better? Are you going to get worse? You're going to get better. There's nothing to worry about. If you're going to get worse. There's only two things to worry about. Are you going to die? Are you going to live? If you're going to live, there's nothing to worry about. Uh, if you're going to die, well, there's only two things to worry about. You're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. If you're going to heaven, there's nothing to worry about. If you're going to hell, well, you can be so busy shaking hands with old friends, you have nothing to worry about. <laughs> so That's cutting off the bottom end of that, uh, end of that uh, little tree there, as long as things are getting better, things are getting better. And what else could we possibly want? I wish I were able to accept that. <laughs> I just feel like better for who and... And at what cost? But yeah. it's it's interesting that you memorized that on your off your grandma's wall. You must have seen that a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, that was a good thirty or forty years. And and better is doing a lot of words, a lot of work in that in what I just said, because mm. yeah, better for whom, like you said, better how. Yeah, I uh, got into an argument the other day. It was a good argument, but it was about like the term economic growth and. Uh, it was with a friend and he was like, yeah, well, you know, like third world countries, they just need more economic development and that's how you improve their country and whatever. And I was like, well, one, where to begin? <laughs> two, it was just like, a, okay, we'll define economic development. And then we just like kept on going down and down. And it just like, I don't know, she just said, well, making things more efficient and having good outcomes. And I was like, uh, like, how do you define what is good? And shouldn't they be defining what is good for them? And so I, I don't know, I'm always like really worried sometimes with like layman terms like that of like, 
good and better because sometimes like the people who are deciding that are often the ones that may not be the, the ones that impact or feel the impact of like the consequences. So I'm always hesitant to say those things. But I, yeah. I, I totally hear what you said. I, I hear what you're saying. We get to where, um, you know, where our measurement is never of the thing we want. It's of the thing we can measure. Uh, GDP is an extraordinary example of that. If a parent stays home and takes care of the child, the contribution to GDP is zero. If they go and get a job and spend 105% of that money on childcare, well, that's massive contribution to GDP, but nobody's lives got better there. Isn't that crazy how we have measurements that sometimes are totally meaningless? It's inherent to measurement theory that you're never going to measure what you actually want to know. And then people are sticky. So they come up with a measurement that's useful in one context and they like it and they stick with it and, and they keep going. Yeah, like BMI. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that one hurt. I, I, let's oh. just let's just go around the table naming all these horrible measurements. <laughs> Someone stop me from spending 20 minutes on BMI right now. I know, right? Like even in the agriculture cultural industry, like some measurements of success are usually around yield rather than like balance and how much you're able to like actually like take out and put in to keep your land producing and healthy versus just creating this like like monocrops that are totally susceptible to pathogens and they're all alike and it's a very fragile system. But yet you get more investments and like loans even if you have higher yields, but higher yields often tend to mean like really like ravaging your land. So I always like think about what measurements of success are and if they even make any sense. BMI, GDP, perfect examples. This sounds like we shouldn't measure anything, which isn't what any of us are saying, I know. <laughs> I like to use the, the phrase proxy measure a lot because right. I'm measuring something, but it's just a proxy. It's only ever a proxy for the thing I really care about. So like the health of the country, not GDP. GDP is a proxy measure. It's just the economic half of it, but maybe we could add another proxy measure or two and get a little closer. All measures are proxy measures. The way I use them, at least like my models of the world and as a product manager. Proxy measure. I love that. All measures are proxy measures. And so knowing where they fall down uh, and being aware of, okay, yeah, GDP went up, but everybody's more miserable. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, you're the richest country in the world and you're also like the most depressed. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I like, prox I, I like proxy measure because it also like, there is the foundation that it's limited. And I always think that that is healthy. Yeah, it helps you see that there's going to be, you know, an error percentage in there and that you, you should be looking for it to see, like, is it still applicable in this situation? Is the measure actually actually useful or accurate versus where, like, it was originally developed? So, Bree, there's a word in your bio that I don't think I've heard before. And I wonder if you'd be willing to tell us what this is and what this means. Uh, equitism? Oh, yes. The, that is um, a word I use to describe myself in the future that I believe in. So I call myself an equitist, which is, to me, means like the fusion of like soulful political movement where you are seeking balance and accepting change, staying curious, and 
believing in a world that can be nourishing for you and your community. And so it's like the idea of empowering community, finding a a role in a community that is meaningful for you. I think a lot of people experience meaninglessness um, in like jobs or whatever. So like finding roles where you can actually feel you have agency and the power to affect good I use that word loosely into the world. So like being probiotic in your approach. And to me, it's very political, but it's also just a way of being. So that to me is what like equitist is. It's like a balance of it. So it's not like a conservative or like moderate or liberal or progressive or socialist or democratic socialist. It's like, it doesn't fall into the spectrum that be in terms of politics. It's just like an alternative way to say to not necessarily reject the political spectrum, but add like a a Z measure to it. Does that make sense? Was that too? (laughs) Was that too? Do I need to break that down a little bit or is that too weird? (laughs) Let me know. I think this is partly why we get along so well. I care a lot about having people feel included and like things are being built by the people who need them more than building stuff for people, or at least in the middle of building with people. I think about that in the workplace a lot and in the community a lot, like with ranked choice voting, we work on together. It's a big part of that too. Mm-hmm. I have family that are conservative and liberal and all, all different types. And I talk to all of them. And my big thing is I want everyone's voice to be heard and part of it. I support all these people. I just want them to be involved and, Sounds like it's pretty related to equitism. I want yeah. to get the people involved in the stuff for the people. Yeah, it's a kind of like saying that the way systems are set up some like sometimes just aren't very people-centric. And even the way we think about like the political spectrum to me is like kind of bullshit. It's just like, oh, you're conservative or you're like liberal or progressive. And it's just like people are way too complex to box themselves in and the people who like putting labels to themselves tend to be the more rigid politically. It's like rigid radicalism in a way. And so I just feel that, okay, so you have a very like strong view of what you would, you would like to see and what you think ought to be. But if your proposal is like toxic or unhealthy, like, I don't know like if you if you aren't if you aren't able to bring people in and they feel good about the way they want the world to be with that idea I know it's just like kind of like rejecting dogma in a way I feel like this itself is its own conversation yeah yeah, that that's a lot to to digest I would say right there to pull it into tech a little bit this reminds me of user-centered design where you're building stuff with the person in mind, you're incorporating them, and ideally they're even part of your team. The kinds of people who would use your application or on your team, that would be the best. Yeah. I personally am not on like the UI UX side of things, but I'm always like wanting to know what users think about the things I build because it means absolutely nothing if you build something that you think is so cool but no one finds useful. So... Yeah, I always am very sensitive to that. And I, I agree, like working on a team with, with all men has been sometimes the most challenging thing in my life. And it can be very, very alienating and isolating. And 
it's just nice to have allies, but it's also, it's so nice to also like feel like in solidarity with someone too. So yeah, I totally agree with that, Casey. So now's the time of the episode where we go into what we call reflections, which are just the, the thoughts or the ideas or the things that we're going to take with us after this conversation and maybe keep thinking about or talking about with others. I think for me, the thing that's sticking with me is, is the changes that you made into the, the sort of standard political script of not only the door knocking, but also the, the way you approach the space at a political event to, to sort of break down the hierarchy and to bring relation, you know, at an even level. It's very, dare I say, anarchist, you know, because there isn't that hierarchy between the people who know and who are telling and the, and the people who are just being told. Um, and I really like that because it is so inclusive and it's so welcoming. And that is, is an idea that I want to keep thinking about and find ways to bring into my life. I've got two things I want to share. One is, I like, Damien, your quote of me that said, all measures are proxy measures. I probably even said it, I don't know. But that it's very succinct, the way you put it. I love it. And my second one, I need to work on this one a little more, but thinking about how growth mindset and outcomes, not outputs, relate. Like progress, I'm not sold on that word either, but it seems like that should fit into that framework in my head someday. I hope it sits nicely. Well. Uh, Casey, thank you for repeating that. All all measures are proxy measures because I had already forgotten it. Um, you said it first, and I repeated it because it was so awesome. And so now I'm gonna now now I've heard it four times, and I'm gonna hold on to that. I would have used that as my as my reflection. But I, I was thinking how there seems to be so much. <laughs> this is a hilarious thing to say. Uh, in the computer software industry, there's so much binary thinking. Uh, things either are or they aren't. And being able to work with non-binary, uh, is the only way to deal with things like trust. It's the only way to deal with, with things like confidence levels. You know, nothing either is or isn't. That's not how human cognition works or how the world around us works. And so it's important to know our, our limitations when we put things into binary and to avoid putting things into binary as much as possible, which is at odds with the entire science and field and so that's going to be something i put a lot of thought into into the future thank you i just want to say i, I do think there is space for like uh, like having the binary in terms of like having it advance exploration but yeah I, I do think binary as something that is strictly to be followed can be toxic might be the demise of our culture but my reflections is, yeah, I love all measures or proxy measures. I think that's fantastic in terms of just like thinking of something as like, you can use measures and try and have metrics for things, but with the grain of salt on what it is you're actually measuring. And, and that whole like quantum thinking of like, the more you try and measure and pin down the, the more it's not there. And I think there is that little magic in between trying to measure and also like not have to confine something or define something, I should say. And I also enjoyed the fact that this conversation just kind of like meandered. We had a lot of topics and I feel like there's a lot to unpack. So I feel like I'll have like a lot more reflections, even like, <laughs> like two days after this. I'll be like, whoa, we talked about this one thing. <laughs> I take a long time to process. So that's a good sign. Yeah. Good conversation. Yeah, thank you all for having me on. Oh, thank you for joining us. Yeah. This has been wonderful. Thank you.